All right, all right, all right. Well, good morning again, Hope family. Thank you, thank you, thank you, the two of you that are still with me here. Appreciate that. Hey, if you're watching online or listening later on the podcast, we're really glad to have you with us in that way, and especially if you're just checking out the church by seeing um, what it looks like, all that good and fun stuff. We hope to see you here with us in the room soon. Would you guys agree that it's way better in the room than, yeah, yes, there we go. So consider that your, your invitation. Um, well, here we are. It is, holy cow, it's February, um, and we decided that in 2023, we were going to dive into a sermon series on the Gospel of Luke, and we're calling the series Jesus for Everyone. And just so you kind of know what the plan is, is that we want to work our way through the book of Luke for at least the next eight months. Um, it seems like the Holy Spirit points us to another direction. We'll shift gears, obviously, and go that direction. And to be honest, I don't imagine the way that we're going to do this is going to get us even through like the first half of the book by fall. But um, again, we just felt like it was the journey God was calling us on or drawing us to. And one of the things about that is that, that the gospel of Luke can be summed up, I think, in one phrase. Um, and here it is. It's, it's all about Jesus. And Jesus is for everyone. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus is for everyone. And what we'll see as we go through the book of Luke is Jesus constantly reaching out to people who were pushed aside by the society of those days, and especially folks who were overlooked, um, unlikely cast of characters um, in that culture, especially, you know, how women were treated. But Jesus reached out to and partnered with women. Um, we meet a thief. We meet Gentiles, fishermen, sinners. Um, they're all here, and they're all seen uh, because in the kingdom of God, in the story that God is writing, the story that God invites us into, those people matter. And it just got me thinking about today in our culture, like, who do we think um, these days matter? We, you know, how do we decide who's a big deal in our culture? And this weekend, uh, Super Bowl is in town. Uh, anybody have any extra tickets they want to give away, by the way? <laughs> Searching their room. I see that hand. No, okay, that's just, nope, not, okay. Um, hey, you have not because you asked not. There we go. So I, I tried. Um, but the Super Bowl is in town this weekend, and it's really kind of a who's who for sure, right? All the celebrities come to town for these kind of events. And Friday night, this last Friday night, the big party to be at um, was at Talking Stick Resort. Uh, it was Shaq's party. Apparently he DJs, supposedly, um, Shaquille O'Neal. And um, Snoop Dogg did, did some, some sets. And, and so a, a friend of my son Noah, um, this guy had a pair of free tickets and brought Noah along. So I thought, well, this is interesting, you know, free tickets to this. I looked up the resale ticket market, and just for the general admission, for the, you know, the normal people, $341 was the lowest resale price for this um, party, but if you wanted VIP, those resale prices rivaled Super Bowl ticket prices, um, and if you wanted even better to be on stage VIP, those were tens of thousands of dollars. It was insane, which is kind of funny because Noah, his Buddy got him into the VIP stage area. Um, not that he could have sold the tickets, although if he could have, I'm pretty sure he would have. Um, 
But it's interesting because he's around all the movers and shakers, all the influential, important people. And it struck me that he said um, to Heidi and I afterwards, he said, you know, the most genuine person uh, was the lady working, uh, the most genuine person, the most enjoyable conversation I had that whole night was the lady who was just working the front door. This one of the staff people. Um, interesting, because this is full of all the movers and shakers and the party to be seen at. It's the who's who of whoever. It was the happening place in town. Um, and then, so that was Friday night. Then Saturday morning, uh, we got to go to a really fun event. Uh, Liz and Sam, their family had a table at a Super Bowl breakfast kickoff Saturday morning. It was a Athletes in Action, which is a, um, <clears throat> a Christian ministry with athletes. And the award for the day was the Bart Starr Award, which was, um, the, the winner of the award was, was the Minnesota Vikings quarterback, Kirk Cousins. So I was like, yay, at least he won something. Um, <laughs> ouch, Vikings fan here, still heartbroken, sorry. Um, and by the way, I actually... You know, I'm not bitter, but I emailed Kirk's agent a couple of weeks, uh, probably a month ago, just randomly, like, hey, you know, Kirk's in town. I think you'd speak at our church. Um, no reply. Go figure. Weird. Um, so you guys get me today. Sorry. But um, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Well, you're a Packers fan. Of course you're cool with that, Dalton. Yeah. So that room was great, and I love that the focus was different because it wasn't about all the who's who, uh, um, but it was full of, you know, important folks, uh, VIPs, football players, coaches, TV personalities. Um, we actually heard from at least one billionaire owner of, of, of a team, and the focus of that event was on Jesus, and we had a great time. We had a great time hearing about the faith and testimonies of, of a number of athletes, and you know, it just got me thinking that, you know, we Christians, um, we tend to get excited uh, when a person of prominence or power starts to proclaim Jesus, whether it's a, a musician who might come to faith or, or an athlete or an actor, some sort of celebrity. I mean, I get excited because of the potential impact I think maybe those folks could have because of their celebrity or influence or their reach, um, um, and that doesn't just stick with, you know, sports or entertainment. We sometimes see that kind of deal play out in the church world, like, like folks get wrapped up in the celebrity preacher syndrome. Like I'll see a pastor or a church doing something just amazing and big, and, and I can start to think, wow, what they're doing is so huge that what we're doing and what I get to do seems kind of insignificant, um, but I thought about this even a little bit more, the whole idea of VIPs and influencers, famous preachers, and what I was reminded of is, is that too often when we focus on the celebrity or the powerful or the important, we run the risk of missing the great things that God does through the seemingly insignificant or the weak people of the world. And again, this is kind of a struggle for me, um, to be real. I, I sometimes wish I had, you know, more influence. I wonder, you know, you know wow, what, what if I had stayed in that big church world and said yes to that, and maybe more people would be impacted, and what would that look like? And by the way, I don't have to think too long to go, I'm so glad I'm not in that world, but sometimes I wonder. Um, or sometimes, you know, we pastors, we get kind of tempted to wonder, you know, what if we were just better connected to powerful people, like 
What if just one famous athlete or celebrity joined our church and tithed on their $10 million salary? Wouldn't that be amazing, right? I know a couple churches that have that blessing. It's kind of cool, right? But, um, um, and it's not just out of trying to you know, grow or be big or be famous or known. Because um, I honestly do think here at Hope we have this special church family. We have this grace-filled environment where people who want to can find and follow Jesus, and so I'm thinking, you know, well, wouldn't it be even better? Couldn't we reach even more people if we had all these connections with folks that had money or power or celebrity or influence? Um, But that's kind of a kingdom of this world thought pattern. And I think it's easy for us when we get into that mode of trying to crank out a strategy, we are kind of conditioned to operate in the kingdom of this world methods, um, it's easy to think that the best way to get the word out about something is to partner with a big spokesperson, someone that everyone will listen to, a celebrity, an athlete, a politician, a social media influencer, a talk show personality, someone from the educated elite or maybe a billionaire because they are seen as the power brokers in our world. And so we often think if we want to make an impact, we're going to need to find people with power and position and influence and get them in the mix because they are the big deal. They can get the ball rolling. And that is how it works in the kingdoms and power structures of this world, right? Work the system, be important and influential, listen to the popular voices. That's how we get things done, at least in the kingdoms of this world. But that is not how it works in the kingdom of God. See, in the kingdom of God, um, in the story that God invites us into, it just doesn't work that way. Like Jesus shows up, and when he shows up, he, he comes and turns this story upside down from what we human beings tend to expect about how things are supposed to work. And that's a big part of why when Jesus was Born When the Messiah that the people of God had waited for hundreds of years finally showed up, most people missed it, especially certain religious of the people of God, because they had a very specific, very narrow idea of what it would arrive, look like for a Messiah to be full of power and arrive to set them free. It was mostly focused on them being free, them being in power. Um, But Jesus turned that upside down. And Jesus is for everyone. If we pay attention to what the writer of Luke shows us, and we're just going to look at the first few chapters, um, we're going to start to see that God's kingdom, God's way, God's story comes not through the power brokers, But God's kingdom comes through those who say yes to God. God's kingdom most often shows up through the nobodies. Now, early on in the Gospel of Luke, we'll hit the first story here for the day. This theme of the nobodies shows up for us. It's actually verse 5 of Luke 1. Just look at the names here. It's on the screen. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but, and this was a big deal in their culture, but they were childless 
because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. So, this first story that the Gospel of Luke opens with, um, we have Zechariah, he's a common priest. Uh, scholars estimate that at that time there was between 7,000 and 18,000 priests in that day. And so, because he was a common priest, about once every 24 weeks, he and his division would, would leave their city, they would go to Jerusalem, they would serve at the temple, and then the rest of the year he'd be back with his family making a living. And what happens this time on his rotation is, is Zechariah shows up, and essentially he wins, I guess, like the priest lottery, right? He, he gets to be selected as the one guy who gets to go into the most sacred place that, that he would be allowed, and he gets to go in to burn incense. This was a once-in-a-lifetime offer, and so he's got to be excited and maybe a little nervous. And so then he goes into this sacred area, and when he goes in, he sees, to his surprise, an angel. Gabriel shows up, scares the tar out of him, um, and Gabriel says to him, hey, listen, Good news, you old man and your elderly wife, Elizabeth, y'all are going to have a baby. And this 400 years of silence since the prophets last spoke, that's going to be over because your son, John, he's going to be like the most powerful prophet, Elijah. See, God is showing up and amazing things are about to happen finally and it's starting with you, Zach. And you can this week um, just read the rest of the details because it's a fun story um, but just want us to think about this piece. Luke opens the story of Jesus the Messiah in his gospel by telling us a story about not King Herod, um, not the top dog chief priest, not a wealthy up-and-coming influencer, but he starts by telling the story of an old man past his prime, common Zachariah, and his elderly wife Elizabeth, who wanted a child and prayed for a child, but it was too late. And so just starting to read the story of the gospel of Luke, the reader probably is like, wait, 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 what? What? The story of Jesus starts with a, an older couple, an insignificant priest, just one among thousands of priests, a couple of nobodies. What kind of story is this story? See, it's the first clue that Luke gives us that the kingdom of God is not what we might expect. The kingdom of God's subversive and God's kingdom most often is revealed through the nobodies. The nobodies. And that same theme of the nobodies, it carries on. The next story, we're still in Luke, next chapter. Um, Luke 1, uh, verse 26 starts the story that we read every Christmas where the subversive kingdom of God invites into the story of God a young peasant girl from the tiny town of Nazareth. Her name was Mary. We talked about Mary actually the first Sunday of this year that, that Mary or her name there would have been Miriam uh, actually means rebellion. She was a firecracker. And God chose Mary to be the mother of the Messiah. And the angel Gabriel shows up to her, tells her that she would bear a son conceived by the Holy Spirit. She was supposed to name him Jesus. And we read this and have to scratch our heads right away. Because, because if we're watching 
Mary's, you know, newsflash from the angel Gabriel's visit, if we were to watch that unfold in real time, we'd probably be super confused. We might think, really? The Messiah, who we've been waiting for, is being born through Mary? Like, why this girl? I mean, listen, if the Messiah was finally going to be born, wouldn't, wouldn't he show up in an important, influential family? Be born in a palace surrounded by comfort and servants and beauty and abundance. Wouldn't it make sense for the Messiah to be born to someone with status and clout, position and power? It's like, wait, 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 what? What? The kingdom of God is showing up through Mary? A, a nobody? What kind of of a story is this story. And again, still in the first chapter, and Luke creates that question again for all of us, what's, what is going on here? What kind of story is God telling? And right here, Luke gives us another clue that God's kingdom most often shows up through nobodies. When we move to chapter two of the book of Luke, Jesus is born and as we talked about at Christmas, his first worshipers, they were a bunch of nobody special shepherds. And then the very next story, um, this one's worth reading. Again, check it out this week. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Um, Jesus is eight days old. He's a baby. And he's taken to the temple in Jerusalem because that's what they did. And they were going to dedicate him to the Lord. And you would think, ah... If you're reading the story the first time, you'd go, okay, right here, surely, now, eight days old, fine, 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 it's been all obscure, but now, this is going to be a great time at the temple <laughs> for God to tell some important people that Jesus, the Messiah, has arrived. I mean, you've got hundreds of priests there, you've got thousands of worshipers, you have the chief priest probably right there. Like, these are the wealthy people, the influential people, and surely now, right now, at eight days old, it would be good for the movers and shakers to get clued in to the big news that these nobody special shepherds already announced that, that the Messiah has been born. But instead, God leads a guy named Simeon, a good, devout, godly man, but apparently he had no title, he had no influence, but Simeon sees the baby Jesus, and he finally knew that all the years he'd been waiting for the Messiah were over. He sees this baby with this impoverished couple, and he knows from God that this is the one. And then, the next verse tells us that, that a lady named Anna joins them. Anna was an 84-year-old widow who, who Luke writes, she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. So picture an elderly woman who was likely, probably by then, just kind of seen by others as a fixture in the building, in that area that she was allowed in, not into the inner courts or any special areas where women weren't allowed in that day. Um, and because she was a woman in that culture, she was not allowed, even though she was there all the time, she was not allowed to do what others deemed important or significant. But just like Simeon, God's spirit reveals to insignificant nobody, Anna, that the long-awaited Messiah had just arrived. 
And this story as well kind of piles on the last few stories, leading us to wonder again, what in the world is going on here? Right? If, if God was finally going to reveal his Messiah, wouldn't he show that information to someone important? You know, maybe the pre- chief priests or, or some reputable Pharisee, you know, somebody with status and clout, somebody who could, you know, help get the word out. We want the word to spread. I mean, elderly Anna and old man Simeon, really? And we're only in the second chapter the book of Luke, and he keeps raising that question for everyone. What kind of story is God telling? And in doing so, he gives us yet another clue that God's kingdom, God's kingdom is most often revealed through the nobodies, at least in the eyes of this world, the the nobodies. We flip the page, Luke chapter 3, we meet John the Baptist. And last week, this is the story that we started with, um, and John the Baptist was the one who gives us our cue for how we as a church operate, because John the Baptist knew he wasn't the big deal. He knew Jesus was the big deal. John was just a pointer pointing to Jesus, and so as a church, we know we're not the big deal. We're not even trying to be a big deal. Jesus is the big deal. And so we celebrated last week the ways that our church family gets to point people to Jesus. But this is chapter 3 where we meet John the Baptist. And last week I skipped the first couple verses, but they're important. So I want to start from verse 1 and check out the names in two verses here as I read. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor, Pilate was governor of Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Ituria. And Trachonitis Lysanias was ruler over uh, Abilene. Any Texans here? Yeah, that's not Texas, just, just, just so you know. All right, so and these three names here uh, near the end, um, Antipas, Philip, and uh, Lysanias, those are Herod's three sons. So Herod the brutal. I don't like to call him Herod the Great. Herod had died, and so when he died, his kingdom got split between three sons after he died. So that's who those three sons are. They are now ruling that area. Next verse, verse 2. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. So more big shots listed here. At this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zachariah, who was living out in the wilderness. Now, just stop and think about these two verses. Nine names are mentioned in just two verses. And the question for me, and maybe you, would be, why does Luke mention all those names? Tiberius, Pilate, Antipas, Philip, Lysanias, Annas, Caiaphas, before he says, at this time, a message from God came not to them, but to John, John, son of nobody, Zechariah, in the where? Not a palace, not a temple, but where? In the wilderness. I mean, again, in the eyes of the important people in the corner of that world, John, he had no official title. He is insignificant, so most likely they'd be like, who the heck is John? Like, he's a nobody, 
Or, or if they did, you know, hear of him because his preaching ministry eventually did grow, but at the start of his ministry, they'd probably be like, whoa, whoa, John, yikes, like he's obviously crazy, he lives out in the wilderness eating locusts and honey, I mean, come on, if God had been silent for hundreds of years now, at this point, hundreds of years God's been silent, seemingly not speaking through any of his people or prophets since the Old Testament's completion, if God is going to finally break silence, wouldn't he speak through somebody important, somebody with status and clout, someone who could you know, spread the word in a way that people would respect. I mean, come on, who's this John guy? He's a nobody. He has no political power. He doesn't get paid by the temple. Why would God give him a message? What is going on here? Like this John story makes no sense for how things are supposed to work in this world. And I think what what Luke is doing here in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3, I believe that by mentioning all those names, he's identifying all the powers of the kingdoms of this little corner of their world, the, the political leaders, the religious leaders, those who were seen as the important people. Because as any of us know, if you want to strategically spread the news, wouldn't they be the ones to get involved so they could really get the ball rolling, have some real momentum. But Luke reminds us that the word of God did not come to them. The message of God did not come to them. It did not come to the emperor of Rome, to Tiberius Caesar. It didn't come to Pilate. It didn't come to Herod's boys, and it didn't come to the chief priests. It didn't come to all the people who have all the power and all of the status in the kingdoms of this world. Instead, it came to an untitled, unwashed, rag-wearing, locust-eating hermit in the desert. Which is such a clear indication that the storyline of how things work in this world, that storyline is changing. The way God's kingdom, God's story arrives tells us that if we're going to walk in God's story, things are going to be much different now. And again, Luke is raising behind the scenes that, that question for all of us. What is going on here? What kind of story is God telling? Giving us another clue that God's kingdom most often is proclaimed through the nobodies. I mean, Again, think about this. The, the way the people back then would have expected the, the Messiah to show up and introduce the kingdom of God wasn't going to happen the way they expected it. Not from people in power or with position or influence. Not from those who would make really good allies, good teammates. Luke shows us that the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, everything is getting turned upside down. Because now in God's kingdom, who counts and who doesn't count is getting all mixed up. And now who makes a difference and who doesn't make a difference, it's getting flipped upside down. And now the ones who have power and the ones who don't get flipped around. It's what Dallas Willard calls the great inversion. I like that. The great inversion, a new kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be First, where those who have exalted themselves will be brought low, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And see, in the beginning of the story, we learn what we continue to see through the rest of God's story, is that God 
passes by the obvious, the rich, the powerful, the famous. He passes them by and he prefers, it seems, to work through the nobodies. Look at the pattern again. Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, shepherds, Simeon, Anna, and John. I mean, just see the, think of the list of those names that we ran through there. And if you needed to have privilege or, or education or status in order to enter into the kingdom of God, it would simply be another elite organization run for the benefit of the top people. And that's not how God does it. So at every stage, the gospel subverts this idea the way we see things in this world. We see in God's kingdom, this heart for the seemingly insignificant. We see that, that Jesus is not just for the powerful or the, the properly religious, but that Jesus is for everyone. And we learn that since that value is not shared by Israel's power people, their rulers and leaders and self-appointed teachers, since those people in power aren't emphasized, they're not really interested and usually they're actually offended or indignant when they see Jesus lifting up those who are of their opinion lower status. But Jesus brought and brings his kingdom through, through his followers, his disciples, his diverse and motley group that he chose and invites to be his partners. Not the people you would expect God to partner with. In fact, the Apostle Paul says it this way. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak to shame the strong. So apparently, in the kingdom of God, the way to make a difference in our world doesn't actually depend on alignment with the movers and the shakers. And the Gospel of Luke opens with that theme, with this, who the kingdom of God shows up through, and it wasn't who people expected causing them and us to ask, wait, 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 what's going on here? What kind of story is God telling? Because God passes by the powerful, the wealthy, the influential, and he works through the nobodies. And when we wonder what is going on here, I'll tell you what I think is going on here. See, I think that the kingdom of God, especially in the stories we begin to read right here, the kingdom of God is turning all the ideas of who counts and who doesn't count, of what matters and what doesn't matter. He's turning it upside down so that now we just never know who God might partner with as a kingdom ally. <laughs> we never know. We never know. He, 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 he just might choose some insignificant, common, elderly people way past their prime, like Zachariah and Elizabeth. He, he might just choose some teenage girl from a podunk town in an insignificant desert named Mary. He might just show up through some faithful but aged out random church people like Simeon and Anna. He, he, he just might show up through some strange, locust-eating, camel-hair-wearing hermit in the desert like John the Baptist. And even more astonishing than that, God just might show up and work through you or me. See, God's kingdom, his power, his life comes through those who say yes. They say yes to partnering with God in his story. 
And so just to wrap up this morning, I want, I want to wonder about what that means for us as individuals, and then a couple minutes on what maybe that means for us as a church family. So first, what does this mean for us as individuals? Because I think we are often, most of us at least, tempted to believe what our society believes. I think we think, you know, hey, if you really want to make a difference, you've got to strive to become important and well-known and successful, wealthy, famous. But, but, but if you can't gain fame, power, influence, then you're kind of a nobody, and so you really can't make a real impact. Which is, again, that's, for the most part, the way that it works in the kingdom's and systems of this world. But, but, followers of Jesus don't live by the ways of the kingdoms of this world. You and I, we get to live in a different story. And in the story that we're invited into, what really matters is us saying yes to God. That's what matters. Joining our story with his story, that's what makes all the difference. That's what matters. And so, just on a more practical level, okay, then how do we do that? How do we do that? And, and I think uh, it starts by asking God to give us kingdom eyes, um, that we would start to see like Jesus sees, to, to notice the things and the people that Jesus notices, which might be as small as developing a, a practice of, of being present and kind to the to the grocery checkout person, um, or, or, or speaking encouragement to the drive-through worker, uh, or, or just finding simple ways to bless the lonely or those in despair, just simple, everyday ways. It could be that simple. Um, we can all do that. Some of us, though, it might be a little more involved, um, like finding a ministry that you, that you are going to partner with. Um, I think of our, our small team of folks, a ministry called Reminisce. They go out every other week to do a worship service in a memory care facility. And instead of wondering, you know, what, what, are you, what, spending time with people who can't remember their names, much less yours, what, what good could that do? And instead, trusting that in the kingdom of God, those are the places and people where God shows up. And so maybe God invites you into something like that, serving at a local food shelter, food bank, or or, or a shelter with Matthew's Crossing. There's so many different ways where we could get in a little deeper into things that seem like it can't make that much difference, but remembering because of the kingdom of God, he's going to take it and Use it as we partner with him. Um, And it could even be all the way to some life-altering major change where God does call you to dive in deep with missions or or projects that require more more generosity of your time or finances. But but just no matter what it is, no matter where the scale is, um, what I know is the kingdom of God gets momentum when we start to pray, God, what specific place in my life are you asking me and calling me to bring the light of your kingdom. We pray that, and then we pray what we've been praying the last month or so. Speak to me, God. I'm listening. And when we listen, we can start trusting that God will partner with us 
maybe in ways that you never dreamed were possible, making an eternal difference in your story and in the story of so many others. That's just a personal level. God, what specific place in my life are you calling me to shine the light of your kingdom? And then being open, speak to me, God, I'm, I'm listening. And then secondly, so that's our individual stuff. Secondly, um, as the worship team comes, um, what about us as a church family? And this is where I could talk for a long time, but I tried to cut it down to just a couple minutes. <laughs> what would that look like for us to embrace this as a church family? You know, instead of trying to play the church, church growth game and buying the idea that bigger is always better, there's nothing wrong with bigger. It's just bigger. It just is bigger, but, but it, bigger isn't always better. Instead of buying into that game and spending our energy on trying to be known and influential, imagine the difference that we here in our church family could make together if we were all in on loving God, loving others, following Jesus together. Imagine the difference it would make if we all took ownership of strengthening hope as this grace-based family where anyone can find and follow Jesus. The, the kind of family where, where you can belong even before you fully believe. The, the kind of family where, where you come and experience acceptance no matter what you were struggling through. The kind of family where you don't have to hide where the worst about you could be known and you discovered that you were loved more and not less in the telling of your real struggles. The, the kind of family that valued being multi-generational and multicultural, looking for ways to embrace and invest in and sacrifice in order to create a real family that proclaims that Jesus is for everyone. So what if, what if we... All, let me say it this way. What will happen when we all grow deeper in that together? See, for one thing, I think uh, we would see the power of God showing up in surprising ways. We would see the kingdom of God at work in ways that we never dreamed with an impact beyond what we could ever imagine or have done with even the best strategy. And that would come just by us trusting that God wants to use Nobody's, in the eyes of this world anyway, nobody's like you and me. And so as a church, I want us to continue like we've been doing, listening, learning to listen to God, asking and praying. God, as a church family, what specific ways are you calling us to bring the light of your kingdom? Speak to us, God. We're listening. Let's just listen for a moment in your heart. Whether it's what God's speaking to you as an individual, or maybe you have something for us as a church family. And I'd love to hear about those things this week, but let's just take a moment. God, as individuals, as a church family, what specific ways are you calling me or us to bring the light of your kingdom? God, speak to us. We're listening.
Amen. Friends, the way we partner with God in the kingdom, again, we, I need to hear this all the time, the way we partner with God, most effectively trusting the way he does things, <laughs> it's not by coming to God with slick strategies or clever marketing. Um, the way that we do that is by coming to him just as we are, just as we are. We don't have to wait until we get everything else figured out, all the extra training. Training's great. We don't have to wait for that to partner with God's calling to us to do as a people. We get to come to him as we are. So will you stand and sing with us as we prepare to leave this morning?